Well, hey friends, this is Mike Goldsworthy and welcome back to the Space for Faith podcast where we are reimagining the church for our current moment. And this is the second of a short series of short podcast episodes where we're highlighting some of the things from our recent uh, post-evangelical collective, the gathering that we had in Denver here uh, earlier on in October of 2022, for those of you who are listening later on. So what, what we're trying to do here is just give you a little bit of a taste, a little bit of a picture of the experience of the collective which is kind of hard if you're not there. Because as I mentioned last time, what we do at these gatherings, they're not super content heavy. There's content that's a part of it, but it's not if you have ever been to any kind of like pastor gathering or Christian gathering where it's just speaker after speaker after speaker. Like that's not really the heartbeat behind this. We're, we're trying to change the experience of these sorts of gatherings a bit, but we're also recognizing the need for good, thoughtful content that sparks conversations. It's a catalyst for that. So all that to say, we don't have a ton of stuff to share, but we've got pieces to give you an idea of like, what's it like being there? So what you're going to hear today is you're going to hear from, from two different people. You're going to hear from Eric Wilson. Eric is a spiritual director And one of the things that we do at this gathering is we invite in a group of spiritual directors who offer their time for free for people throughout the gathering, where people can have spiritual direction uh, time throughout the gathering. And so it's such a gift for these pastors and artists and other church leaders to have that kind of space. And Eric is delivering a spoken word piece. And then he also served as one of the spiritual directors with us there, which was such a gift. The other person you're going to get to hear from is Dr. David Gushy. David Gushy is an ethicist, and a lot of folks at the gathering knew him largely around two of his works. He has a book called Changing Our Minds about how he came to embrace LGBTQ inclusion in the church. And I know for a lot of folks at our gathering, that had been a really significant and important book for them and for their church. Folks also knew him for his work in After Evangelicalism, where he begins to paint a picture for like what what is sort of like the Christian movement heading towards, at least particularly those who have been influenced and inculcated in uh, evangelicalism, and particularly white evangelicalism, like what is that moving towards? And so then he's going to, you're going to hear from him as well. And just so that you know, these two, like the spoken word piece was on a completely different day. Uh, I just put them together to have like two short pieces for you to get to experience and hear from. And you should also know that David Gushy, when he shares, he's got some visuals, which will be apparent in his sharing. I think you are all smart folks and you can follow along without seeing those visuals. You'll do just fine. But before we move into that, I wanted to, like last time, share one of the Instagram posts of somebody who is reflecting on their time at the Post-Evangelical Collective. Again, just to give you a little bit of an experience and picture of that space. And so I hear this from Carrie Latticer. Uh, This is what she wrote after our time together. She said, I've been saying for a while, I think that agreement is the cheapest form of unity the church perpetuates. 
It aims for a false sense of harmony, but love that can't navigate disagreement feels like blasphemy. And I can't unsee how the ability to disagree requires a capacity for honoring another's story and being willing to hold our own loosely. To hold space for curiosity, to each expand our empathy, together pursue the mystery and experience generative, beautiful reciprocity. I left with more questions than answers and more hope than my heart once had capacity for. I'm not exactly sure what is stirring here, but I'm asking the divine to cultivate more. Thank God for the mystics and misfits, the wanderers and wanderers, the down and out and the cast out, and the willingness to compost the pain and allow something new to sprout. With dreamers and schemers, begging no more gatekeepers, watching power surrendered and the marginalized centered. In the devastation of deconstruction, I see a space for resurrection. In the desert of the wilderness, I experience people pursuing wholeness. In the tender healing places, something new is emerging. In the safety of these spaces, our capacity to heal the world is enlarging. Peacemakers, good trouble shakers, longing to become a loving presence, a beloved community embodying the ways of Jesus, the very expression of God's essence. Alternate caption, she writes, super dope week sharing space and diving deep with these amazing humans that I love, friends and family from many domains of my life, learning and challenging and comforting one another as we dream together about cultivating the future of the church, thankful to be a part and for how each person there showed up and co-shared this beautiful space. Amen and amen. Friends, we'll turn it over now to a spoken word piece from Eric Wilson, and then we'll move into Dr. David Gushy's talk. This is not a nursery rhyme, because there's nothing cute about brokenness, neglect, abuse, and hopelessness. Can blindness be where the focus is? Because we teeter on the wall. And they rise so high, these walls we build, constructed of promises made, but never fulfilled. Brick by brick, lie by lie, we feel we're safe over here because they're on the other side. But we all teeter on the wall. But this is not a nursery rhyme because round frames were never meant for flat surfaces. Equilibrium's off by the hurt that is. Deny and move off is the advice we give while guilt engulfs the penitent. Sullen face delirium, winds of change can't steady them, moving too close to the edge again, and we teeter on the wall. But this is not a nursery rhyme because one false move and you find yourself falling, falling past things silent that should have been said, falling past truths that never made it to the heart that stayed in the head, falling past cruel conventions contained, sins that's dogged and still remain, mild and mammoth addiction sustained, weak-willed affections that could never contain, falling. You see, this is not a nursery rhyme because we're falling, falling, falling! Crash goes the souls we have. Each crack a crevice of the pain that grabs our shells so brittle and frail. Gash marks inch across of epidermis. When will it end? We can't determine. Bleeding out at the base of these self-made walls. This is not a nursery rhyme. 
This is a call to action. This is a cry for the beloved kingdom. This is a deep wound moan for something better. This is the final realization of the one true matter. All the king's horses and all the king's men could never put this much damage together again. It takes the king himself to rise from his throne to assure us all you may be broken, but you are never alone. You may be broken, but you are never alone. You may be broken. But you are never alone. Can you hear it? Can you hear God say, in my hands are your pieces. In my heart is the cure. In my embrace alone is your heart secured. No, this is not a nursery rhyme. It is good to be with you today. Uh, I am grateful for the invitation. I'm really excited to see so many of you here and um, grateful to Mike for the opportunity to be here. So I've been asked to do some theology, which is kind of fun. I'm usually asked to do ethics and basically blow stuff up in the ethics area. Now I'm, I'm going to try to do a little bit of theology. The question that, I, that Mike asked me to address is um, to try to locate post-evangelicalism historically and theologically. And I think that's an interesting assignment, and I'm going to take a crack at it in this way. Now, um, I had a student who is much better with graphics kind of sketch out this little church family tree. Don't press it too hard, okay? This is not perfect. It would probably fail a church history drawing exercise or whatever. But this is mainly to communicate a couple of things. So um, we, all Christians, inherit the historical tradition of the church. We are all um, part of the family. And of course, and, and I want to say this very clearly, our story does not begin with the early church. It begins with the Jewish community. And we're in, I understand this is a former Jewish synagogue. Um, we are in interesting, sometimes uneasy and difficult ways. We are, we are permanently connected to the Jewish community and our, we tend to be healthiest when we remember that and when we accent that connection and tend to be least healthy when we turn anti-Semitic. So anyway, um, the ultimate root system of Christianity is uh, historic biblical uh, Jewish faith. Um, but we uh, have our own long separate trajectory that begins with uh, the early church. And usually historians, you know, make a point to emphasize that things changed dramatically once the church got connected um, to imperial power with the Emperor Constantine. And then, you know, within, uh, you know, 50 or 75 years, the church moved uh, to a position of establishment power and partnership with, uh, with the throne that, and this is what we think of as the Christendom period, that in some ways the mentality of Christendom has never fully gone away. Um, the idea that the church is partnered with the state 
in creating a Christian civilization. Uh, and this affects our politics in many countries even to this day. You all know, of course, that in the year 1054, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy split. And so we have the Eastern Church and uh, the Western Church with a, with a lot of complexity. Uh, I was raised Catholic, uh, by the way. I wish I understood the Eastern Orthodox better. I think we all should, and I'm going to uh, return to that. Of course, the Reformation happens beginning with Luther in, in 1517, and Protestants didn't just uh, didn't just have a few divisions. We had all kinds of divisions. Uh, I don't. I mean, you couldn't put enough branches on the tree to cover all the Protestants. You know, you got your Anglicans, Episcopal, Methodists. Uh, you know, this. Please don't be insulted if you're not on this tree. Um, so probably just about everybody in this room uh, would identify as in the Protestant tradition in some way. Um, so, oh, here's more. Let's, let's, let's give some more. Okay. Um, so, if you looked at um, the Christian family tree around 1800, I mean, the main thing people would notice would be Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant, and then all the different versions of Protestant. But this is the post-evangelical collective. So, um, so what happened? Well, what happened was in the 1800s, Christians got swept up into arguments related to basically modern epistemology or how we know what we know. And by the late 19th century, um, the older confessional distinctives between the Protestant groups mattered less and less. And the question as to whether one was a fundamentalist or a modernist became the main question. And, and so whether you were in the Baptist denomination or the Presbyterian or the Lutheran, or um, there was a similar version of this on the Catholic side, though it had its own uh, uh, nuances. But basically what I'm proposing is that by the late 19th and early 20th century, the argument in Protestantism was whether one was a fundamentalist who held to strict biblical inerrancy, infallibility, you know, the, a certain set of defined uh, doctrines and a fighting spirit to protect them against modern um, incursions like the theory of evolution or biblical criticism or the a historical sensibility that recognized that doctrines develop over time, that human beings are the ones who develop those doctrines. And you might say that in terms of the family tree, it's kind of like, uh, like a disease came upon the entire family tree that you might call the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And in um, the early 1940s, a group of fundamentalists in the US decided that they, they didn't want to be labeled fundamentalist anymore, and they didn't like what, fundamental, what fundamentalism had become in terms of its cantankerous spirit and its intellectual rigidity, and in some cases, its kind of closed off posture in relation to the world. And so they organized a new a kind of a reform movement within the fundamentalist community, and they were originally called neo-fundamentalists. 
and then they were called neo-evangelicals, and then they were called evangelicals. And my guess is that most of the people in this room come out of that development, the traditions in which we were uh, raised or entered at some point. So my claim is that evangelicalism was an, well, here's the polite way to say it. It was an effort to reform fundamentalism. Here's the less polite way to say it. It was a rebranding of fundamentalism <laughs> that never really succeeded in making a profound theological change. So that the theological instincts of most evangelical leaders and denominations never stopped being fundamentalist. And, uh, and, and that includes a kind of a rigid biblicism uh, and also a tendency to try to exclude those deemed heretical. Uh, perhaps a few people in this room have had that experience, right? So evangelicalism began as, as, as an effort, well, they took the word evangelical from an older tradition, but they said, we are the true evangelical Christians, the true gospel Christians, the true New Testament Christians, and we are going to build a kind of a consensus Protestant movement um, called evangelicalism, and that movement has been in operation for about 80 years. The National Association of Evangelicals was founded in 1942. Some of them, the, probably the two most famous names associated with the birth of modern evangelicalism were Carl Henry and Billy Graham. Carl Henry representing the theological kind of major domo and Billy Graham, of course, the powerful evangelist. Um, and one of the things that's interesting about, if you think about these folks, is that they didn't have that much in common theologically or even in methodology, but there was an effort to build a kind of an evangelical subculture, and that effort in some ways succeeded in, in two ways. One was a number of new organizations, denominations, parachurch groups, and so on were invented. The other is a lot of older denominations were, I would say, essentially swallowed up by capital E evangelicalism. I would now say that evangelicalism became a kind of an imperial colonial power in uh, global Christianity. And, and in some ways it swept over the distinctives of specific denominations like the Evangelical Covenant Church, the Evangelical Free Church, the Mennonites, the Pentecostals, and so on. I've argued in my book, After Evangelicalism, that these groups would have been better off if, they had, if there had never been an evangelical movement because they had their own kind of genius themselves. But evangelicalism came in and, and had its power structure and its superstars and its ability to intimidate the crud out of anybody who was thinking in some different ways than, say, the editors of Christianity Today or whatever James Dobson thought or whatever Carl Henry thought or whoever was in charge of the denominations. So as we come out on the other side, my, my assumption is if you're in a group called the Post-Evangelical Collective, you don't want this anymore, okay? You're done with this. Can I get an amen on that? All right. So, but what do you do? Here's the, here's the problem. There's no going back in, in time. It's like we're not, 
we're not able to just reverse all this. Well, maybe we are. Let's see. Where, <laughs> where did my slide go? There it is. Um, uh, in essence, we can't, we can't reverse what happened in the 19th and 20th and early 21st centuries. We can't act as if it never happened. But if we are going to, to be post-evangelical, in one sense we have to ask this. What treasures from the history of Christianity can we access now that can nourish us in the future? And I want to say that the whole family tree should be up for consideration. Um, we were taught in evangelicalism, you don't want to pay any attention to those Catholics, they're heretics. And the Eastern Orthodox, they're so strange. And, and so we're going to be evangelical because we have the truth. Part of resourcing post-evangelicals is to ask, what elements of tradition and practice can we draw from the past? I think of uh, the statement from Jesus, um, drawing on the treasures, new and old. So, so what I think needs to happen in the theological and, and you might say the preaching life of post-evangelical churches is to search the tradition for usable resources. You might find Eastern Orthodox writers who are saying things more beautifully than you ever imagined. You might find Catholic spiritual practices that can be retrieved. You might find hymns from the Anglicans. Did you notice the kind of traditional move in the worship that we had already? That was, I heard the Book of Common Prayer. I heard some older hymns. I heard, I heard the doxology. I don't think the future for us involves acting as if there's nothing usable in the tradition. It involves retrieving what is most usable in the tradition to build something for the future. There's actually a phrase in Catholicism for this. It's, an, it's a French term, and I want you to, to memorize this. It's called ressourcement. And that's what I'm talking about, okay? We need some ressourcement. It sounds almost, I don't know, sexy or something. I don't know. We need, we need to, to resource ourselves with the heritage of the church. Evangelicals told us, don't read non-evangelicals. We say, forget that. We're going to read whoever has something interesting to tell us, right? Um, and we're going to, to cast our net widely. Um, let me just kind of give you a list of some of the, the elements of the tradition that are important in my own work, in my own post-evangelical work, just as an example, and you might have a different list. So for me a deeper dive and focus on Jesus and the gospel story. Um, evangelicals tended to draw our attention to Paul and Romans. I think it's time to pay attention to Jesus and the gospels. Um, what I would call the prophetic messianic kingdom of God through line in the Bible. Uh, and that is Hebrew Bible and New Testament. Overall, a deeper engagement with the Jewish scriptures, tradition, paradigms of interpretation. I'm also very struck by the, by the contribution of Holocaust theology. That's important for me. Um, a communitarian approach to scripture. 
that emphasizes that scripture is the text of the church created by the church, read and curated by the church, and that we now together read seeking help for following Jesus. I'm trying to renew a theology of covenant, that churches are not just um, assemblages of individuals who like to be together, but covenantly committed communities. We make a covenant with Jesus and each other to be church together. So the category of covenant. Um, the radicalism of the early church, as seen in the New Testament and in some of the early uh, church writings. Uh, I've emphasized the Christian humanism of Erasmus. I think Christian humanism is a, a, of the Renaissance period and has been renewed by other authors that emphasizes the sacred worth of the human being, all human beings, and openness to the world of humane knowledge and not that closed brittleness that we were taught in evangelicalism. Um, for me, the Baptist tradition into which I was baptized as a 16-year-old reads fresh again once I've sloughed off evangelical overhang. Um, Catholicism has its riches, in particular the Vatican II Catholic documents and the Catholic social teaching tradition. Obviously, uh, the, the black Christian tradition in the United States um, always knew what was wrong with white fundamentalism and evangelicalism in this country and has been offering a dissenting tradition for 400 years. Um, uh, indigenous Christian voices, uh, um, you know, uh, so many options, Asian, Asian American, uh, Latino, Latina. Um, the evangelical left vision that is now basically dead. Do you remember the evangelical left? People like Ron Sider, people like Jim Wallace, Shane Claiborne. Uh, Protestant pietism and sensitivity to the spirit of God, choked out by the, um, by the doctrinaire moves in fundamentalism. The confessing church legacy in Nazi Germany, where we have, in real time, people saying no to the Nazification of a society and of a church. Liberation theologies still have much to teach us. Liberation theologies of every type. The centrality of vital local churches as the place where Christian faith is, is rooted and where it grows. My composite vision, I'll leave you, is this. I believe in a post-evangelicalism that is theologically serious, that is rooted in various aspects of the tradition, that is about following Jesus, that is prophetic, that is very attentive to our Jewish um, sisters and brothers, that is covenantal, that is humanist, that is devout, that is sensitive to the spirit of God, that is committed to justice, that is committed to liberation, that is a place where all people can belong. It is hard to argue with that. Let's go build something like that. Thank you. Amen.